The Old Testament reading for this morning is from Micah, chapter 6, beginning at verse 6. Hear the word of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself down before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn, my firstborn for my transgression? the fruit of my own body for the sin of my soul. He's told you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Reading from the gospel is from the gospel of Matthew chapter 6. Let's stand for the reading of the gospel, please. These are the words of Jesus Christ. Listen to them for your life. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink or what you're going to wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than the clothes you wear? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of much more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to the span of your life? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow, they neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was never arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the flowers of the field which are alive today and burnt in the stove tomorrow, will he not much more likely clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For this is what the Gentiles are striving after. And indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his goodness, and all these will come to you as a matter of course. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. The gospel of Jesus Christ. You may be seated. This morning, we have the pleasure of hearing from Dr. Gady, our provost of Westmont College. Good morning. Students' choice. Maybe uh, senior's choice. Are you ready? Here, here it goes. What now, Lord? That's it. <clears throat> what now, Lord? What do I do 
now. You're disappointed, right? There's no great oratory here, no syncopated stanzas, no hidden messages, just your basic, what's happening, Lord, question. Nevertheless, it must be fairly important because it turns out we ask it all the time in a variety of ways. For example, sometimes we put it in directional terms. Where should I go now, Lord? And sometimes it's pretty personal. Whom should I marry, Lord? And sometimes it's pretty, well, we state it quite broadly. What's your plan for my life, Lord? And sometimes we state it rather precisely. Should I ask her out tonight, Lord? However we say it, there is one thing that all of these questions have in common. They are all what I would call Lord's will questions. And they all seem to come down to this. What have you got in mind, Lord? What have you got in mind for me? Now, I have to confess, I have had many such questions in my life. I remember one time in particular when that question seemed to be especially perplexing. Judy and I had both left Westmont, gone on to grad school, were gone for about, were there for about three years. We'd completed graduate degrees at a local university. And the problem was, where should we go next? Or more accurately, where should I go next, since Judy was ready to start a teaching career and begin making a contribution to society? I, however, was not so interested in making a contribution. I was becoming a sociologist, after all. We don't make contributions to society. We just study it. And my hope was that I would be able to continue my studies in a PhD program someplace. Now, here was the issue. I'd been accepted at two universities with two very different kinds of graduate programs. One was a university in the LA area, and the other was located back east. Actually, it was in the southeast, but you know, anything east of Modesto is back east for us Californians, so. Anyway, <clears throat> the, the Eastern University had the better program as far as I was concerned, but it was also a long way from friends and family. And that would not normally have been a big deal. Both Judy and I like to travel. Except for one thing. About the time that we had to decide where to go, Judy suddenly became pregnant. This, of course, was not entirely Judy's fault. <clears throat> but it made our decision much more difficult because it meant that we would soon have many more financial and personal responsibilities to attend to. And the question was, should we stay in Southern California, where we had plenty of people around us, friends and family, to help us through the impending ordeal? Or should we move back east despite the family to come, just because the program back east seemed better suited to my needs? It was a most perplexing question, and we wrestled with it for days on end, trying to figure out precisely what the Lord had in mind. Despite our efforts, however, we could find no satisfaction. If on Monday the wind seemed to be blowing to the east, on Tuesday it would be blowing in exactly the opposite direction. And regardless of what conclusions we reached on Wednesday, on Thursday, it wouldn't make a lick of sense. Of course, we prayed about the matter long and hard, but from the Lord we received not a smidgen of help. The silence from heaven was deafening. All of this came to a head in Fort Smith, 
Arkansas. That may sound strange, except you need to keep in mind that Fort Smith is right on the route that takes you from the west to the southeast. And yes, Judy and I had decided to make the move back east, not because we had any great sense that it was right, but because we didn't have any sense at all. <clears throat> As we pulled our U-Haul truck off the freeway, loaded to the gills, and towing our VW van behind, that's what we drove in those days, a VW van, <clears throat> well, we were awfully tired. Tired of trying to figure out the Lord's will, but physically exhausted as well, since trying to save money, we had only made one prolonged stop the entire trip, and that was an eight-hour sleepover in Albuquerque. So it was a relief to be heading down a two-lane road straight for the bright lights of Fort Smith, straight for the most comfortable motel in town. Not long before we crossed the city limits, however, I began to notice something peculiar in my rearview mirror. It was a vehicle, not unlike any other, but strange in one respect. It maintained a discreet distance between itself and our truck. That was unusual for a number of reasons. First, people don't like to follow trucks. They either speed around them, or if that's not possible, they fall back and let the truck move on ahead. This fellow didn't do either, however, and that was the other strange thing. He just sat there, about 25 yards behind my truck, and maintained his position perfectly. I mean perfectly. This continued for a couple of miles, and not being a particularly patient man on a highway, I began to get annoyed. What in the world is wrong with him, I thought to myself. I was too tired to come up with an answer, so I decided just to get rid of the problem. Slowly, I began taking my foot off the accelerator, letting my speed fall back to 50, then 45, then 40 and eventually 35 miles an hour. Follower didn't miss a beat, maintaining his distance with just as much precision as before. So I hit the gas, bringing my speed up to nearly 70. <laughs> but follower remained undeterred, keeping his place a safe 25 yards behind. What in the honk is he doing, I now blurted out <laughs> to my sleepy wife. She paid no attention, assuming I was just in another one of my combat moods on the highway. <laughs> I quickly had my answer, however. When we finally crossed the city limits, the street lights brought follower into clear relief. As I peered into my rearview mirror, the, first, the fir thing first took shape as a car, then a blue car, then a blue car with a light on its roof, and finally a blue car with three sets of lights a large-hatted man at the wheel, a shotgun on his dashboard, and probably a bazooka and 15 hand grenades on the front seat. It was, in other words, a Fort Smith policeman. Honey, we've got trouble, I said as in greatly exaggerated tones. I know, Stan, I'm, I'm sleepy too. Just take the first motel that comes along. I'm not tired anymore, Judy. We've got a policeman following us, and he's been tailing me for the last five miles. I don't know what the problem is, but he's definitely not a friendly. Judy snapped to attention. There's a motel stand. Let's pull in there. I obeyed, even though the place looked like a cross between a stable and a house of ill repute. As I popped out of the truck and walked over to the office, I passed by a no vacancy sign, but found that hard to believe. How could a place like this be full, I asked incredulously. The man inside confirmed the sign, however. Sorry, son, we're full up tonight, he bellowed big convention in town. Again, I found that hard to believe. What kind of convention would use a place like this, I wondered, as I made my way back to the truck. Pool players of America? People for a better bowling alley, perhaps? 
My tiredness was starting to show, as well as my middle-class bias. No luck, I said to Judy as I jumped back into the truck. We'll just have to find something a little pricier, I'm afraid. As we headed back onto the road, I took a quick peek into my rearview mirror, assuming we had ditched the policeman, but checking just to make sure. I was relieved to find that the spot 25 yards to our rear was now vacant. Only one car was behind us, and he was directly on our tail, no doubt anxious to get around us. I pulled far to the right so he could pass us easily. Nothing happened. I thought it might help if I slowed down a bit, but that didn't have any effect either. I reached out the window and adjusted my mirror so that I could get a better look at the car. Judy, I said in a controlled scream, Blue Bayou is still on our tail. <clears throat> Judy kept her mouth shut, trying to be a calming influence and at the same time find another motel. We haven't done anything wrong, Stan. I don't think we ought to worry about it. Don't worry, I blurted out. My dear wife, it's past midnight. We're in Arkansas. We've got California license plates. We're pulling a VW van, affectionately known as a hippie wagon in those days, and shotgun Sally is on our tail. And you say, don't worry. What is this supposed to mean anyway? Let's face it, we're in trouble. As is usual during such outbursts, Judy paid absolutely no attention, knowing that it would soon pass and knowing that my mouth had once again outpaced my brain. There's a Holiday Inn stand, she finally said, over there, just around the corner. Praise the Lord, I thought to myself. Middle-class America, regular people, regular rooms, and regular prices. Can't have everything. <clears throat> the important thing, however, is that we were finally on our own turf, in a world we understood, in a world that was safe. The sense of security did not last long, however, for again we were confronted by a no-vacancy sign and a man who said, Sorry, son, we're full up. It was nice to know that I had so many fathers in Arkansas, but otherwise, the words were not very comforting. <clears throat> are, are you sure you, sure you don't have anything at all? I asked pleadingly. We're, we're very tired, and we've got to find a place to stay. I'm sorry, young man. The combined society of bowlers and billiard players has taken everything in town. That's not true. <clears throat> But he said, we don't have a thing. I must have looked crestfallen because the man quickly followed up his assertion with a qualification. Unless, unless your name is Rothen. I have a room reserved for a couple named Rothen, and they haven't shown up yet. You wouldn't happen to be them, would you? He asked with a funny sort of smile. I'm, I'm afraid not, I moaned I, as I started back to the door. Are you sure you're not the Rothens? He asked more firmly his voice following me as I continued down the hall. If you are, I can give you a room, no questions asked. I started to yell out an incredulous no when I finally realized what he was doing. He had a room that the Rothans had reserved for the night, but it was almost one in the morning and chances were great that the Rothans weren't going to show up. He couldn't give the room to me since the Rothans had already paid for it. But if I said I was Mr. Rothan, he was in the clear regardless of what happened. It was actually kind of a nice gesture, and I could see by his smile that he was hoping I would go along with it. And once I realized what he was saying, there wasn't anything in the world that I wanted more to do. I wanted to say yes. I was tired. My nerves were shot. The world outside was a foreign land to me, full of dangers and evils that I could only imagine. And here in this Holiday Inn, there was peace and comfort and rest. 
With every bone in my body, I wanted to say, yes, indeed, I am Mr. Ruffin. But there was another voice in my being with another answer imprinted long ago by a parent and a Sunday school teacher and then by my own eyes in the quiet of my room. Do not be deceitful were the clear words of this voice. And their message was not at all ambiguous, nor the implications difficult to figure out. Uh, <clears throat> thanks, thanks very much, I said in the kindest tones I could muster, but I can't do that. I'm, I'm not Mr. Rothen, though I certainly wish I were. I'll see what we can find down the road. You won't find anything, the man responded quickly. It's a weekend night with a convention in town. I doubt there's any vacancy within a 20-mile radius of Fort Smith. I've got a room, Mr. Rothen. If you'll just sign here, it's yours. So easy, I thought to myself. This would be so easy, and maybe even right. After all, it's dangerous to drive while you're tired. I've got a pregnant wife to think about. Is it right, right to put her at risk on the road? Isn't a little lie here really the lesser of two evils? Wouldn't the Lord understand? Get thee behind me, Satan, I mumbled as I walked towards the door, my mind still buzzing with possibilities. What's that? The man at the counter asked. <laughs> oh, nothing, I said with a raised voice. I was talking to somebody else. Thanks for your help. As I walked back to the truck, I felt tired, confused, and helpless all at the same time. Maybe this trip was a colossal mistake, I thought to myself. Maybe the Lord really wanted us to stay in Southern California after all. One thing for certain, circumstances were not giving me any comfort. I was becoming discouraged and more than a little worried. I decided to put as much distance as possible between us and Fort Smith, and the sooner the better. In a matter of moments then, we were back on the freeway heading east once more. It wasn't long, however, before tiredness overtook me again, and I began wondering if I would ever get some sleep. Fortunately, what Fort Smith lacked in the way of hospitality, the rest of Arkansas made up for in the way of beautiful roadside parks. And so we decided to just pull into one of the parks and try to get some sleep. We were pulling our van after all. Why not just get out our sleeping bags, throw them in the back of the van, and catch a few winks? Well, that seemed like a perfectly good idea until we tried to put it into practice, at which time we were confronted by another Arkansas specialty. Heat, soggy heat, thick, soggy heat. Traveling along at 70 miles an hour, I hadn't noticed the humidity or the fact that the air was almost perfectly still. Lying down in the van, however, it suddenly became evident the night was warm, the air was thick, and breezes were non-existent. Hmm, this is not so good. Is it, hun? I got no response. Judy was already asleep. Well, I thought to myself, maybe I can just tough it out. But as I laid there, the beads of perspiration became more pronounced and a tinge of claustrophobia descended down my spine. I knew I was doomed. In a desperate search for relief, I jumped out of the van, threw my sleeping bag on the grass, and collapsed vulnerably to the ground. Shuff shuffling around to find a comfortable spot, I was only faintly aware of a rustling noise somewhere over my head. As the sound grew louder, I started to take heart "'Tis the gentle stirring of a summer breeze,' thought I. And I eagerly awaited the first wafts of wind to collide gloriously with my body. Unfortunately, it was a southern, not a southern breeze, but a southern mosquito that descended from the heavens. 
and it was accompanied by an entire squadron of mosquitoes, each one fully equipped with all the appropriate armaments. Caught off guard, I began wildly to beat my body in an attempt to eliminate a few of the marauders. The mosquitoes accepted this as a challenge, however, emboldened no doubt by the fact that they were 200 million in number, and I, I, a mere mortal, was equipped only with two scrawny hands, both of which spent most of their time flapping helplessly in the air. What kind of a place is this anyway, I yelled as I rummaged through the truck looking for some mosquito spray. These guys are vicious. It wasn't long before it dawned on me that I didn't have any mosquito spray, that I was an environmentalist and didn't even believe in this stuff. But I wanted to believe, I can tell you that. In fact, at that moment, I wanted to, what I wanted to do was spray the entire state of Arkansas with mosquito spray. I was without means, however, so I did the next best thing. I grabbed my sleeping bag, opened the rear door of the van, announced pointedly, we're off, and roared once more onto the freeway, this time not stopping until we reached our final destination, another 10 to 12 hours down the road. It was a horrible trip. And somewhere in the midst of it, somewhere in the bowels of Fort Smith, I think, I became absolutely convinced that it was all a mistake, that we had made the wrong decision, that the Lord really had wanted us to stay in California, and that we had moved outside his will. But then a funny thing happened, and I don't have time to tell you the ins and outs of it, but within a few months it became abundantly clear that not only had we not made a mistake, but we had made a wonderful decision. The university program turned out to suit my needs far better than I had imagined. Judy landed a teaching job in a nearby school system in spite of the fact that she would need to take a two-month maternity leave because they, you know, right in the middle of the year, but they wanted her because they were in desperate need of someone with her skills and her background. And right off the bat, we found some very special friends who remain good friends to this day. I could go on and on, but the point is, for all our difficulty on the trip itself, the destination turned out to be a grand one, as much evidence of God's blessing as we've ever known. That fact, however, only served to make the whole matter of the Lord's will even more perplexing to me. Because, you see, now it turned out that it, wasn't, it was not only difficult to know the Lord's will before you made a decision, it was difficult to know it even after a decision had been made. For weeks after we decided to move back east, and especially during those days on the road, I was ab absolutely convinced that we had made the wrong decision. Why? Because we were having a rotten time. The circumstances suggested that we had blown it, but we had not blown it. The circumstances were wrong. They were not a harbinger of things to come. And the picture they pointed of, painted of the future did not come true. So how in the world, then, do you know the Lord's will? How do you figure it out if we can't even take our cue from our circumstances? Months later, I was still pondering that question when Judy and I decided to take an early morning ride through the countryside. We often did that in those days, partly because the area was beautiful, we thought, but partly just to get away from people and work and responsibilities. Anyway, we eventually found ourselves meandering aimlessly down a narrow country road, full of hills and empty of people, charming and rough all at the same time. Stop the van, Judy yelled out suddenly. Not having paid much attention to the road, I assumed we were heading for an accident, 
so I slammed on the brakes, hard. Whatever else one might say about VW vans, the brakes are excellent. And within a few seconds, our van had come to a screeching halt, and Judy and I were licking dust off the front window. What is it, honey, I asked, not being able to see what the problem was and not being able to articulate a longer sentence with window grime stuck to my tongue. Over there, Stan, look, look up upside of the hill there. I peered out the window, expecting to see a flying saucer or the President of the United States, perhaps. What I saw instead was a small but perfectly average-looking cemetery nestled, nestled among the trees about halfway up the hill. This is amazing, Judy. It's a cemetery. How could I have lived if I had missed this spectacle? In fact, this is worth dying for, don't you think? Let's get out of the van and erect a monument to this moment. We'll call it the, mon the moment we almost killed ourselves in order to look at a cemetery. And all of history will be changed because of this experience. Our children will make a pilgrimage here annually just so they can re... Stan, Judy interrupted, having gotten used to my early morning sarcasm. You're missing something. Look about 100 yards to the right of the cemetery, a little further up the hill. At first, I couldn't see what she was talking about. But as I kept looking, I noticed movement a short distance from the cemetery. As I continued scanning to the right, the full picture began to take shape. Beside the well-kept cemetery, there was another graveyard, not nearly as beautiful as the first and not nearly as well-maintained. The graves were marked by stones standing in irreverent postures, and the grasses beside them were straggly and unmowed. Winding up the hill to the unkept cemetery was a small dirt path, and striding slowly within its borders was an old man, cane in one hand, flowers in another. He was very feeble, very determined, and very black. We watched, spellbound now, as the man continued up the trail and finally reached an unmarked plot of grass. He stood there quietly, bowed his head for a moment, and then suddenly dropped to his knees. The drop was quick and startling, and it made us aware of our own obtrusive involvement in the scene. The man had come to spend time with a loved one and his God, not with two California transplants and a VW van. And he deserved more from us than staring eyes and inquisitive minds. He deserved our absence. I put the van in first gear, and carefully we began to pick up speed. The van seemed noisier than normal, perhaps because we were trying for silence, perhaps because we were silent ourselves. Judy was the first to disturb the peace. What have we done, she asked, and why? Her voice was quivering, weak and strong and wondering, all at the same time. I knew from the tone that she was talking about history, not the noise of our van. It wasn't a question as much as a statement, and I wasn't sure she wanted an answer. Why do you say we, hun? I asked. We didn't build that cemetery. We weren't the ones that separated blacks from whites. I'm not sure I want to take responsibility for that. I have enough trouble taking responsibility for my own life. I'm not sure I want to take on the sins of America as well. You know what I mean, Stan, she continued gently. I'm not talking about that cemetery or just the sins of America. I'm not even talking about whites and blacks necessarily. I'm talking about people, human beings. Why do we treat each other so badly? 
I thought I knew what she was driving at, but I also thought her question overlooked some important details. I was a sociologist, after all, and it seemed to me quite wrong to blame the racial problem in America on human beings in general. I'm not trying to excuse the people who did that, she continued, pointing back at the cemetery and talking as if she'd read my mind. But I want to know why they did it. Especially, she said, I want to know why Christian people could have let it happen. I want to know why Christians in my hometown call their brown-skinned neighbors spicks and greasers rather than neighbors. I want to know why we didn't say boo to that working-class family that lived right across the hall from us last year. I want to know why there are people in our church who cheat their employer out of a day's labor or cheat their workers out of a fair wage. I want to know why we Christians do these things when the Bible says from beginning to end that we are to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. That's pretty direct, isn't it? Pretty clear? So why don't we do it? It was stated as a question, but of course it was not. Judy knew the answer as well as I, and there was no reason whatsoever for either of us to say another word. People sin. That's the bottom line. Even people who know better, even people like us who have been schooled on Scripture from day one, who believe in its teaching and believe in its God. Though we believe, we do not always act that way. Though we know, we don't always find it easy to put that knowledge into practice. The problem is not knowing, the, knowing God's will, in other words. The problem is doing it. And then, all of a sudden, the lights went on and the bell started ringing, and I knew, finally, finally, that I had the answer to my lifelong quest to know the Lord's will. The problem is not knowing the Lord's will, I repeated to myself. The problem is doing it. Again and again, I repeated the phrase as the meaning of it began to sink in. The challenge that God has put before me, I thought, is not to somehow figure out his will at every turn, but to put it into practice, the will, the will I know. What the Lord desires of me is to obey his commands, not attempt to discern commands where none exist, to live according to what has been revealed, not demand revelations for every one of life's choices, to obey his spoken word, not endlessly fret over words that have yet to be spoken. So simple, I thought to myself as I continued down the road in silence. So simple, in fact, and so obviously right that I began wondering how I could have missed it for so long. How could I have spent endless hours trying to decide between right and right and ignore the wrong I was doing all along? Why do I struggle with the Lord's will when it isn't necessary and fail to put the Lord's will into practice when it's as plain as the nose in my face? Why? Because doing what is right is difficult. It's costly. I learned that in spades at the Holiday Inn at Fort Smith. I didn't want to turn down that room. I wanted to sleep. I wanted to get some rest. And saying no to the clerk's offer that night was one of the hardest things I've ever done. But according to what I knew, it was right. It was, in other words, the Lord's will. And I really didn't like it very much. But worrying about whether the Lord wants me to go back east to grad school, that's the kind of thing I really like. Oh, it's no fun to worry, that's for sure, but it's a lot easier than believing that God will take care of you regardless of what decision you make. That's the tough one. That takes faith. That means living with the unknown. That means living like a believer. 
Better yet, worrying all the time about the Lord's will is a great way to cover up the fact that I have a problem, a deeply spiritual problem, which is that I really do not trust the Lord very much. When Jesus says, do not worry about tomorrow, your heavenly Father knows what you need, well, I really don't quite believe that. And so I run around doing precisely what the pagans do, worrying about what I shall eat and drink and wear, but dressing it up nicely with the language of the Lord's will and assuaging my guilty conscience in the process. You see, to stay away from the Lord's will game, you really have to believe that God cares for you as much as he says he does. You really have to believe that regardless of what decisions you make, if you make them in good faith, the Lord will not abandon you. That he really will go with you. That he really does number the hairs on your head. That he really does care for you and love you every bit as much as he says he does. But that's hard to believe, isn't it? And so we, what do we do instead? What do I do instead? I worry about those things that Jesus has told me not to worry about and ignore the clear teachings of Scripture. Instead of doing justice and loving mercy, I plead with the Lord to show me which parking space he wants me to use. And instead of walking humbly with my God, believing in my heart that he is a God who can be waited on and trusted and who is always faithful, I badger him to death with questions about his will, the answers to which I probably wouldn't understand if he told me and are no doubt none of my business anyway. But praise be to God, you are not me, and my problems are not your problems, a fact that I take great comfort in this morning. But just in case there are a few of you who are as dense and slow about these things as I am, let me offer you this challenge. The next time my question comes to your lips and you find yourself saying, What now, Lord? What do I do now? Remember that the question has been asked before and answered. What does the Lord require of you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Let us pray. Lord, we are not wise. At least I'm not so wise. And so I pray for a special measure of your wisdom in the days to come. Help us to remember your clear teaching, that we might put it into practice in our lives. And help us to remember as well your untiring love for us, that we may not be cast about by the perplexities of life, seeking certitudes where you have chosen not to give them but rather that we might find ourselves immersed in the knowledge of your great love for us. Confident, not because you have revealed everything to us, but confident because the one you have revealed is none other than Jesus Christ, who loves us with such passion that he gave his life for us so that there could be no question whatsoever about the extent of your love for us. Help us now, Lord, to appropriate that love in our lives through your Spirit, that we may know it, that we might live it, and that the world might know by the way we live that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. Have a good day.